Welcome to the New Zionist Podcast, a brand new show from New Zionist Congress. I'm Noah Shufatinsky. I'm Isabel Hazan. And I'm Blake Flayton. We're your three hosts, and we're here to offer a new, young, and authentic take on all things Zionism, Jewish culture, Israel, and politics. This week, we'll be discussing Naftali Bennett, what really caused the fall of Judea, Peter Beinart, and more. But first, what is New Zionist Congress? We at NZC are here to build a space where young people can meet to discuss their passion for Jewish self-determination, learn about Jewish history, Israeli history, and contemporary Jewish issues. In the name of every Jew who has ever lit a candle in the darkness, we're here to build a bonfire. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at New Zionist and on Instagram at New Zionist Congress. And please make sure to sign up to become an official member at NewZionist.org. I'm a proud part of the diaspora. In my heart, a whole Jerusalem in Africa. Kicked aside of our land and started gassing us. Till we put our foot down, cause we had enough. Check out the flag that I'm waving. Two blue stripes and a huge star, David. Check out the flag that I'm waving. Keep shooting rockets, but you never gonna take it. What's up? How are y'all doing today? I'm doing extraordinarily well. Guys, I'm an aunt this weekend. Mazal tov. I'm Tata Isabella. That's how we call it. Tata is how my nephew is going to call me. Amazing. It was so nice to go to synagogue. It was the first time I've been to synagogue in so long with people actually there. We all had to wear a mask and everything, but it was so refreshing. And it was so cool just to see everyone praying. And it's like, I pray every morning just in a more... I like to be connected and I find it's a good way to start it to be grateful but it was something else to connect in a synagogue like next to the Torah and everything with other people praying at the same time it was just really beautiful I'm like so happy that that happened and uh, the rabbi gave a, a quick you know Dvar Torah in the Gemara like it was cute and he was mentioning um, Gematria so Gematria is a mystic study in Judaism and each letter in the alphabet has a certain number and we can calculate the numerical value of certain words, and it has a special significance. And I think that's so cool that we have this Jewish mysticism that we don't usually talk about, but it's the love the study of the numbers. And he was saying how the word Bleak Mila adds up to 612 because like, it's the first mitzvah that you, you have 612 mitzvahs left to do. I probably butchered his shield, but it was cool. I love how like all, there's all this uh, correspondence between words and, and numbers and the letters in Hebrew. I think it's super interesting to really like take a deep look into it but that's that's so exciting becoming an aunt and going to synagogue in the same uh i know i'm just so lucky and yeah it's cool it's fully a whole study of gematria which is the study of numbers which is really interesting i wonder if other um cultures have that too it's kabbalistic right yeah very do you guys have a favorite kabbalist Mine is Ariana Grande. I could just be completely making this up, but I <laughs> specifically remember reading it somewhere. Give me one second. Hold on. Hold on. God. Okay, you know what? I'm going to click on the forward. The forward probably knows the T. Okay. It says, move over, Ashton and Madonna. This time, it's Ariana Grande's turn to spill the beans on her connection to Jewish mystical practice. The former Nickelodeon darling told The Telegraph that though raised in a Catholic home in Boca Raton, Florida, she turned to Kabbalah in her teens because of the church's stance on homosexuality. Her brother Frankie, whom she adored and worshipped growing up, is gay. That's what it is. So they were accepting of Frankie, who, by the way, I can't stand, but that's neither here nor there. They were accepting of Frankie, and so they didn't want to continue in the Catholic Church because they said it was homophobic. So they turned to Judaism and to Kabbalah because it was a more accepting space. 
Happy Pride, everyone, brought to you by Ariana Grande's Judaism. So Kabbalah is like, don't you have to study for a number of years, like Torah and Talmud, before you get access to study Kabbalah mysticism? I think so, but I'm not sure that's really true in practice. I remember um, my grandmother would tell me that it was only for men who were over like 40 years old and had to be married and after a certain age. But I do think that Kabbalah is still, in a way, intrinsically linked to Judaism. It's always, it's like the behind the scenes, it's like the light of it. So I'm not so sure. But I also really like the study of Tanya, which is kind of like Kabbalah made easy. And it's a Chabad creation. Yeah, it's really, really cool. I love studying Tanya. It's like the study of angels. It's very spiritual. And I remember learning this on a mood court trip that I went to in Texas. It was a Jewish mood court based on Halakha. And we did, we had judges and it was a whole, we had to present our case solely based on Halakha principles and all this. And one of the rabbis was explaining that Jewish mysticism and spirituality has been systematically taken out of mainstream Jewish life. And the reason was for because Jews wanted to assimilate. And as we know, the reason that we destroy the glass and we just, at, at a wedding and we break the glass is to remember the destruction of Jerusalem. And he was saying that this is really a reform idea, but the real reason or another reason that it's done is to scare away bad spirits and um, evil spirits and bad vibes because um, it just scares them away. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting that an alternative reason that we say this now is because we want to remember the destruction of the temple. And it's interesting. I feel like we need to bring back more spirituality into... Judaism. And as a Mizrahi Jew, I feel like we're very spiritual in the culture. Ashkenazi Jews too, but like, there's a lot of emunah, huge emphasis on emunah that I feel is very common. BH, BH. I think on every exam, I have to put BH. <laughs> every paper, important emails. I'll No shame in my game. I'll put BH in like light gray at the top left. So if my dean is really listening, you can copy paste that into another document and you'll see it. <laughs> you got to. All the delivery trucks out here. This is a little mm -hmm. corner of literally of their logo. So. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. I actually just learned that breaking the glass has that double meaning. You can break it, you shatter it at a wedding, not only to symbolize the destruction of the temple, but it has sort of a mystic air to it as well, that you're warding off bad, bad energy. Um, but speaking of the destruction of the temple, did you guys, I, I, I swear this is going to be related, I promise, but did you guys happen to catch Bennett's speech or lack thereof mm -hmm. before the Knesset? I think yesterday yeah. morning. I was in Jerusalem. I was at stand with this office, Michael Dixon, Charlie. Shout out. Did you all watch it on the TV? There were like a couple different monitors playing it throughout. So like the people in the different office spaces were all tuned in. You could hear the reactions <laughs> at the same time. It was pretty amazing. Oh, God. My friend watched it at a bar. Or no, he watched the vote at a bar in Tel Aviv. And so when the government was sworn in, like, everyone was like, ah, and, like, drinking. And I had massive FOMO. I was like, damn it. Okay, but so for those of you who didn't watch uh, Bennett's attempted address before the Knesset yesterday, um, before he was, uh, before the government was sworn in, um, it was interrupted. I think there was a moment where he couldn't even finish a sentence because there were uh, right-wing politicians, uh, uh, members of the Knesset, who were just interrupting him and jeering and yelling and shouting and, and just making fools of themselves. Like, I think all across the political spectrum in Israel was disgusted by it. I follow some right-wing voices on Twitter, and I also follow some left-wing voices, and everyone was pretty upset by that. Um, and they, they were kicked out of the room, and then they were, like, snuck back in, and then they were kicked out again. Like, it was a high camp dramatic experience. 
And Bennett was obviously getting frustrated. Actually, Yair Lapid was supposed to give another speech, um, like accepting his role as foreign minister and as alternate PM. But he like threw it away and spent the time like chastising them and being like, shame on you. I think he like apologized to his mother because he was like, you schlepped all the way from this random town and now you have to witness this, like what was supposed to be a very special, important day. Um, so he, I don't even know if he re, he gave that speech again after the fact, maybe he did, I don't know. But Bennett, during the um, during his, his struggle session, said he sees in the Knesset the Second Temple era zealots, Bar Giora and John of Giscala, I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of those right, who were so convinced that they were right, they burned the national home down. Bennett was referring to the Likudniks who were acting out and acting a fool as zealots who turned against their fellow Jews to facilitate the destruction of Judea during the Jewish-Roman wars in like the first century, um, which is kind of lore in Jewish culture, right? That yes, we were, uh, the Romans laid siege upon us, the Romans burned down our temple, there was, you know, an invasion. Um, but also just as potent in our, in our history and especially just in our stories is that it was Jewish infighting, you know, that brought down the temple, that brought down Judea, that uh, began the diaspora or the diaspora experience. And I think that is super interesting. If you guys don't know, and, and, and it was interesting how it has, it, it's so important to us infighting that you don't not believe it because Jews are kind of famous for infighting. We're famous for that shtetl mentality of it was a horse, it was a mule, it was a horse, it was a mule. <laughs> Which, if you don't know, is the fight that happens in the in the song tradition from Fiddler on the Roof. Like that's such a big part of our culture is Jews screaming at each other and disagreeing on politics. As the the Zionists versus the Bundists, the the left wing Jews versus the right wing Jews, etc. And the Talmud is just people arguing. <laughs> the Talmud is just people screaming at each other and disagreeing. So this all kind of, this lore of infighting began, of course, with the story of Kamsa Bar Kamsa, okay? And if you don't know what that is, here's the tea. All right, it is a Jew, Jewish legend that the beginning of the siege of Judea by the Romans began when a certain man had a friend named Kamsa and an enemy named Bar Kamsa. He once threw a party for himself and said to his servant, go bring me Kamsa, his friend, but the man messed up and went and invited and brought over Bar Kamsa, his enemy. So when the man who gave the party found out that Bar Kamsa was there instead of Kamsa, he said, you are my enemy. What are you doing here? Get out. But Bar Kamsa was having a good time. He didn't want to leave. He was chilling. And so he said, no, I'm not going to leave. Like, if you let me stay, I will pay you for whatever I eat and drink. And the host said, no, absolutely not. You're my enemy, leave. And he said, well, I will pay for half of the cost of the party. And the host said, no, you're my enemy, go away. And then he said, well, let me pay for the entire party. Just let me stay. I'd be so humiliated and you know, embarrassed if, if everyone saw me, including the rabbis who were, who were chilling at this party, if everyone saw me leave, get kicked out. So he said, absolutely not. You have to leave right now. And Bar Kamsa was shook, not happy, embarrassed, and so he was like, you know what? That was a shit show. That was completely wrong. And I feel so cheated right now. I'm going to go tell the Romans because I'm so incensed that the rabbis, the so-called noblemen that were sitting at this party, didn't come to my defense or didn't try to appease the situation. I'm going to go tell the Romans 
that the Jews are plotting against Rome. And a lot of stuff, a lot of other stuff happens after that, but that is like the genesis of like, it was that Jewish squabbling and like hatred of fellow Jew that eventually led to uh, the destruction of Judea and the beginning of the diaspora. And Bennett was referencing two zealots from the same period, from the same story that there's actually historical record of. I don't think there's historical record of comes and bar comes. I think it's just a legend. But there were zealots who Bennett was referring to who were so in, in, inflamed and passionate about the war with Rome, about Judean independence, that they, you know, seized Jerusalem and imposed this tyrannical rule, which would eventually lead to citizens defecting to Rome because they wanted to be in a safer place and then having the temple destroyed. And so I think that um, Jewish infighting is something that means a lot to us, and I'll tell you why. I think it's a story that we tell ourselves that isn't true. And I'll say what I mean by that. So Professor Ruth Weiss is a uh, professor, or was a professor at Harvard. She was a professor of Yiddish literature. And she wrote a book called Jews and Power, and it's really good. And in the book Jews and Power, she says that it wasn't infighting. It wasn't Jew against Jew. It, that's a story that we tell ourselves to make us feel better, that we simply could not compete with Rome. So it had to be, it has to be our fault some way because, oh, we did this wrong, we did this wrong, we broke the covenant this way, we didn't honor Hashem in this way, so it's our fault. But no, it was actually just Rome being a colonizing force that just wiped out Judea and killed hundreds of thousands of people. And she says that that mindset continued into the diaspora, where every time there was a pogrom against us, every time we were forced to convert or exiled or, or killed en masse in, in like the Crusades, it was a Jewish compulsion to say, well, we deserved it because we were not living up to Torah. We were not honoring Hashem. We, we need to do better. We need to, you know, fulfill the covenant more in a, in a better way. And so that kind of made the Jewish story be really resilient because it was like every time people tried to destroy us, we just focused on bettering ourselves because because of the story of Kamsa Bar Kamsa and the zealots, we were like, our destruction is in part our fault when it really wasn't our fault and pogroms against us in Europe obviously weren't our fault either. But that's just something that we tell ourselves because I guess it's easier to digest and it's an easier pill to swallow than just the fact that no, it's that Jews have very, or Jews had, had pre-1948, very little method of self-defense. And so if anybody wanted to attack us or destroy our kingdom or kick us all out or you know send murderous mobs to our villages, they could. So I think that's interesting. I think it's also more empowering to say that it, our story is in our hands and it's not because of other people, it's not because of Rome or so on and so forth that this is what happened. But I do think there is a difference between sinat chinam, baseless hate, and um, Jewish infighting. Um, I was just reading here, it was cited a couple of times in Yerushalmi and the Midrash that the reason why the temple was destroyed was because of baseless hate, because of sinat chinam. And that's hate from one Jew to another Jew? Yeah, just hating, like hating Jews for no reason. And the Torah like suggests here, and I was scrolling down, that there was no real valid reason to hate another Jew. Um, so yeah, I, I saw you change your Twitter title, the Twitter bio to um, It Was Rome. And yes, it was Rome. But I do think that when Jews are together and we are united, maybe we, nothing can stop us. Well, that's what I mean by it. I mean, that's like a very Zionist, my, I changed my Twitter bio to It Was Rome which is something that Ruth Weiss says, you know, should be kind of a mantra for us to remember that the Jewish community is always going to have its problems. 
But at the end of the day, the people who want to destroy us don't care about our infighting. Rome didn't care about the infighting. They just cared that it was Judea. And so an anti-Semite is an anti-Semite. So we need to band together as a strong force with a method of defending ourselves, which is Israel, and recognize that, no, it's the enemy that's the problem. It's not, you know, Jewish whatever bill you didn't like in, 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 in the Knesset. When it comes to, I think that Rome cared about the infighting because it was strategic for them. They didn't care about the causes behind it. The same way it's strategic, we see divide and conquer between different marginalized people in any country. And especially people love to see this divide and conquer among Jewish people in the diaspora today where they can point to someone who's a token. And they care about the infighting and they stoke it because they know that they can use it to their advantage. But they don't actually have a real opinion about it. It's just something that's strategic for them. And I think the sooner we realize that, the less emphasis we'll put on infighting when it comes to actually having to stand together against a real threat. You know, this reminds me of, have you guys watched Suits? The way that the, 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 the huge firm in the show came down was because of the infighting within the firm. And that's how the other firm took over. And it just reminds me of what we're talking about now. And uh, I agree with what you're saying, Noah and Blake. We shouldn't give more clout to irrelevant fringe groups who fight against the interests of our people. But there are some who, you know, there's a difference between disagreeing with our people and those who work against our interests. And there's a lot of those I feel that sometimes feel disenfranchised and don't have a space for criticism because we're like, oh, you said this, well, we'll jump on them. So like, I don't know, I think maybe we should find ways to increase the Ahabat Israel and to be united over things other than Jew hatred. We should be united all the time, not just when there's what's happening in the diaspora right now, this or a social media program or whatever it is. I really want to find a way to unite the Jewish people from love. I'm a proud part of the diaspora. Up next is care about this, not that. Look, sometimes we all get wrapped up in an issue or a topic that seems so important, but often it's just not worth it. And we can be focusing our time and our energy on things that really matter. We'll use this spot to point out issues when we see them, and we'll hopefully give you something way better to worry about. So speaking of anti-Zionist Jews, um, the thing not to care about this week, and this is also a message not only to, you know, the, the niche of the Jewish Zionist community, but also it's kind of a question to the media in general. Why are we caring about Peter Beinart's opinion on the Israeli elections when he doesn't even believe that the Israeli government that held the elections should exist? That's honestly my genuine question. I think that there's so many conversations right now about the elections. And for some reason, like outside of Israel and outside of the Israeli media, a lot of them are focusing on these Peter Beinart-esque uh, opinions and points, talking points that, oh, like the election is happening, but it doesn't matter because no matter what, there's going to be a racist, is you know, Israeli president, uh, prime minister, everyone in the government who's hell-bent on the destruction of the Palestinians. And I think it's really reductive to Jewish society. I think it's actually blatant anti-Semitism, to be honest, um, because you're literally saying that issues about women's rights, about rights to abortion, about LGBTQ rights, about the environment, about religious freedom in Israel are all unimportant because of whatever the hell this guy who doesn't even believe in Israeli government's right to exist and govern because of his opinions and the talking points he's saying on CNN. So honestly, I don't think we should be paying any attention or caring about his opinions or even elevating them to expert level on something that he inherently disagrees with its existence. Honestly, I think that for us, it's more important to actually focus on 
uh, the ideas and other topics that are actually possibly going to change, um, such as what I mentioned with women's rights, LGBTQ rights, religious rights, uh, and the environment, because there's actually really cool opportunities right now to see drastic changes for the better, in my opinion, on that. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. As far as something that I think we should absolutely care about, there's been a conversation a lot within the Jewish community about Jewish people feeling, feeling safe uh, about being Jewish in public and being visibly Jewish, whether it's wearing a kippah, wearing a magen david. And I think that it, especially with leaders in the community, it's been like a really difficult question and thing to navigate because students will ask like, oh, should I wear my Star of David in public? But I'm nervous about it. And what if I get attacked for it? And it's putting leaders in a position where they're like, obviously I want my students, my you know pupils to be proud of their identity and not shy away from it. And also they don't want to feel responsible if something bad happens to them. So I want to kind of open that question up. And I want to, I think that this is something that we should all be caring about and all talking about right now. Um, and giving it more attention because this is something that actually affects all of us. A couple weeks ago, someone had written a tweet that said, tell me you live in New York without telling me you live in New York. And I quote tweeted it and I said, I'm afraid to wear my kippah outside. And I got some positive feedback for that tweet. Not that I really look at feedback on tweets these days, but I got some positive feedback and I also got some negative feedback from Jews who were like, you're being ridiculous. Of course, you can wear your kippah outside. You know, this is New York City. You're loved, you're accepted, whatever. And I got kind of offended by it because I was like, you know, this is my feeling. This is my experience. I can just tell you straight up that I'm afraid to wear kippah outside. Um, and I got kind of pissy at them um, because I don't feel like it's anybody's place to tell another person what they're comfortable or not comfortable doing, especially when you see the news that's been breaking over the past few months. However, I then went to Central Park um, on Saturday to have a lovely soiree um, on the Great Lawn. And for those of you who haven't been to Central Park on Saturdays, um, there's a very strong Jewish presence because it's Shabbat and because when it's nice out, there's really nothing better to do on Shabbat than walk around with your friends in Central Park because, you know, you're away from the temptations of, of technology and all that. Um, so there's so, I mean, I, we were sitting in one spot for like four hours and hundreds of people walked past me um, with, with yarmulkes on and, and Jewish traditional uh, clothing and, and there were some not as religious people. But the point is, I thought to myself, well, none of these people are afraid. They're clearly not. So why am I? And I thought to myself, these people, you know, are all hanging out in groups with their friends. They're having a great day. It's the sun is shining. Sounds like a lot of fun. They're having, you know, a great time without a second thought. And I think it spoke to how there is something to be said about being so in tune to the internet that you're just blasted with news about anti-Semitic attacks all day, which I am. And I really thought to myself, if I was being dramatic because of this, the bloodstream that I'm in, of where I, you know, I, I'm sensing danger everywhere because every time something happens, like when a guy walks into Brooklyn and pushes over tables or somebody's harassed on the train um, for wearing talit, then I, I'm just hyper aware of it. Um, and I also, it was just an interesting conversation I had with myself because I was like, maybe social media is installing this fear in me 
where others who have the don't have the privilege of not looking visibly Jewish like I do are just fine. My take on it is, especially someone from France um, DM'd me because I posted, um, don't be scared, wear your Magen David. And someone said, well, we're not scared. It's really for safety. And we're not like, we're not like chicken. We're not fearful. And I was like, I felt bad because I was like, you know what? I get it. It's for your safety. And I'm not trying to say and like it came off really badly, or at least to this person, he took it badly because he was like, well, we're not scared. We have to do this for survival. And I thought, you know what? It's true. Two things can exist at once. You could be scared to wear your Megan David or your kippah, but I, in my opinion, I think we absolutely, even if we're scared, have to wear it because it is far more dangerous for Jews to stop being Jews and to give in to the fear. Because a lot of it is also the psychological terror and um, being bullied online. And Blake, you're not just anyone. And Noah, you're not just anyone. All of us are very public online with it. And yes, we don't have millions and millions of followers, but those who want to hurt us know could and are active on it. It's a very small niche. But I really do think our feelings of fear, yes, they're real, but we have to wear Magin David. We have to be proud. And it's far more scary and far more dangerous to, to, to not, to stop being Jews. Yeah, I think also, like, for, for all we know, all those people walking in Central Park were also scared or mindful of it and just still did it. Like, from, I got harassed before in Washington, D.C., walking back from work. I worked as a teacher at synagogue, God Israel. Best way to start my week with these adorable little kids, um, teaching them Hebrew and stuff. And I got stuff yelled at me walking back, and I definitely was conscious of it. I was, I was very angry, and I reacted in a very angry way. Um, as you should. It happened to yeah. me at GW. Yeah, like it's happened. You know, we, we've experienced it. I still went back and wore my kippah the next time. Of course, like obviously I, I'm going to wear it at work, but also on the way back because it felt wrong to take it off. Like it was like, I'm already wearing it. It doesn't feel right to like take it off and, and put it back on only in certain spaces. And I think that, I mean, people have to do what they have to do for their safety and for survival. I understand that. And I also understand the point you're making, Isabella, that it's like a slippery slope. How much are we going to normalize us having to hide who we are before it's too late? I had a friend whose uh, grandparents were in the Holocaust. And she absolutely refused to put a mezuzah on her door. And I'm not here to tell a Holocaust survivor what to do in ever, ever. So it is very real. And, you know, the grandchildren also didn't want to because it's there. Um, but everyone has different reactions to trauma. But I think as a community, our reaction should be to be proud. And I think that really was what it was, the reaction. Zionists are sexy was trending on Twitter for a bit. Judean pride, Judean culture. Like our reaction was, yeah, we were scared, but guess what? We're not going to be bullied into fear. We're going to be more proud. Like anti-Semitism is going to rise, but we're going to be even prouder Jews. And it's funnier because anti-Zionists just make more Jews want to make Aliyah. That's really direct correlation. I think that's spot on. I like how you, how you split it up between like individual reactions to trauma and also like community. Because I think that individuals, like you said, are going to have valid reactions to trauma because it's scary. Like I'm not going to say anything to minimize people who've been, who've been physically assaulted or verbally or anything um, because of their display of their Jewish identity. And also it's our responsibility as a community to make sure that our people feel encouraged to still be proud of who they are and whatever, and offer support to people to deal with that trauma.
Here at NZC, we love celebrating important and inspiring Jews and allies. But we also have to throw shade where shade is due. We call this segment our Hamans and Habibis of the Week. Our Habibis are people who we admire and we feel should be highlighted for their work in activism. Our Hamans, however, are people who are working against the common goals of the Jewish people. They're canceled. We'd love for them to shut up and go away. My Haman of the Week is Ilhan Omar for her recent tweet comparing Israel and the U.S. to the Taliban and Afghanistan, which is so ridiculous. So here, I'll read the tweet out to you guys. So Ilhan Omar tweets, We must have the same level of accountability and justice for all victims of crimes against humanity. We have seen the unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. The fact that a U.S. politician has said this should outrage everybody. It should outrage everyone like across uh, Democrats, Republicans. It should be a bipartisan issue. The fact that we're comparing terrorist organizations to vibrant democracies is absolutely insane. And it makes me wonder why she would even want to serve on in the U.S. or be, you know, what's what's the goal here? And something else that really bothered me was the response from some Democrats like Cory Bush. I feel like a traitor. I'm so I'm Canadian. It's okay. <laughs> um, speak on it. <laughs> <laughs> I comment on so, everyone's politics <laughs> without invitation, unsolicited. <laughs> we in everybody's business. Yes. <laughs> so, Cory Bush goes, Stop attacking Ilhan Omar. Stop attacking us. I'm not surprised when Republicans attack black women for standing up for human rights. When it's Democrats, it's especially hurtful. We're your colleagues. Talk to us directly. And she said that, she said that because the 12 Jewish Democrats wrote a letter in asking her to clarify the comments. Which was so reasonable. And though they are my Habibis of the week. But then she goes on to say, enough of the anti-blackness and Islamophobia. You know, there is real anti-blackness and real Islamophobia that we need to come back together. And it's not with anti-Semitism or Jew hatred that we're going to achieve this. Or, you know, it's everybody against hatred. And to me, it's just like, Ilhan Omar is not being attacked for the color of her skin or because of her religion. She's being attacked because she has been, had a history of saying very anti-Semitic things and she has partially apologized every time. It wouldn't even meet with Jewish leaders. Shout out to Benjamin's Baby by Westside Gravy, you guys. It is so apropos, so timely. Please hear it. Maybe we can put it in, a little snippet of it. That second verse, the how am I an occupier stealing people's rights while well, I'm bringing in some immigrants to breed out the whites at the same time. I guess I'm a double agent. Farrakhan thinks I sold myself slave trade. Hey, cause I'm a boss tycoon. When I'm lost, I think, what would the Rothschilds do? Then I'm back on my path. That train of thought brought me guidance. Take over the world and continue spreading. So I'm like, ooh! <laughs> <laughs> no, you got some competition if you have Blake on your next track. But you really, really, really cannot make this up. I thought it was, when I first saw this, I thought it was a joke from a Jewish account. I was like, wow, we're so funny. Like, this can't be real. Hamas released a statement. Like, you cannot make this up. And they're almost applauding her, saying, can you, can you, she got heat from Hamas, like, barely, like, oh, thank you for what you're doing, but uh, please don't compare us to Israel and the United States. <laughs> a joke. Like, if you would think that a U.S. politician, you know, Ilhan Omar would be so frustrated that Hamas would give her any credibility whatsoever. That's why the Habibis of the week are the group of Democrats, uh, Jewish Democrats, who, uh, who called her out for it. So House Democrats responded to Omar asking for a clarification. They said in their statement, equating the United States and Israel to Hamas and the Taliban is as offensive as it is misguided. 
ignoring the differences between democracies governed by the rule of law and contemptible organizations that engage in terrorism at best discredits one's intended argument and that worst reflects deep-seated prejudice. The letter goes on to say, the United States and Israel are imperfect and like all democracies at times deserving of critique, but false equivalencies give cover to terrorist groups. We urge Congressman Omar to clarify her words placing the U.S. and Israel in the same category as Hamas and the Taliban. And I thought that was very polite of them because this is an assault on American democracy and it is extremely wrong and hateful and truly misguided. And it was written in black and white. So the fact that they're asking for clarification and giving the benefit of the doubt is already very um, big. And, you know, Cori Bush's response to it was just not, in my opinion, not relevant because she said what she said and it was very clear. I think the other thing that pisses me off so much about this is I've experienced plenty of anti-Blackness. I know a bunch of people who've experienced Islamophobia, and I've seen some of the racist, anti-Black, Islamophobic stuff that a bunch of people, including some politicians, have said about Ilhan Omar. For the the fact that they're going to say that that very nice letter is anything similar to the crazy amounts of Islamophobia and blatant anti-Blackness is ridiculous. You really are saying that these Democratic members of Congress who asked Jewish for clarification— Jewish members of Congress. I honestly think that this letter, like you said, was extremely polite. And I actually think that maybe it's a conversation for a different time. But the fact that they're even throwing that sentence of, oh, and like the U.S. and Israel, of course, deserve critique, sometimes is unnecessary yeah. and irrelevant. It's ceding too much ground. You don't put—for a minute, I'll even leave Israel out of this. You don't put the United States and the Taliban in the same sentence— and then expect for, for people to have misunderstood what you had to say and, and say, oh, I wasn't making a false equivalence. You don't do that. You don't put Israel, Hamas, Taliban, and uh, the United States in the same sentence. That's outrageous. And the fact that now Jews are being scapegoated, these Democrats who wrote that letter that was honestly too nice, in my opinion, and too polite, um, but was very United States political, so I understand it. The fact that they're being you know, portrayed as, as Islamophobic and anti-Black for that statement is a disgrace. And I like what you said, Noah. They ceded too much ground. But the more that we're talking about it, it is, if they had said anything a little bit more pronounced or a little bit more out there, what would the, the reaction would have, like, what oh, would it, it have been? It would have been worse. It would have been 10 times worse. Well, everyone, thanks so much for joining us this week. I enjoyed myself, and I hope you did too. Please remember to listen to our next episode next Friday. You guys, I'm like, dead serious this time. Isabella and I and Noah were texting this morning. We have proof, documentation, that the Vatican is in fact holding our menorah hostage in the basement of the Vatican. We're going to spend the next week devising the master plan, the blueprint to Naruto run into the Vatican. If we get enough (laughs) Jews to sprint into the Vatican at once, they can't all stop us. It's ours. We're going to take it back. Tune in next week to find out how. It's going to happen. All right. See you guys next week. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm a proud part of the diaspora. In my heart, a whole Jerusalem in Africa. Kicked aside of our land and started gassing us. Till we put our foot down because we had enough. Check out the flag that I'm waving. Two blue stripes and a huge star, David. Check out the flag.